everybody, welcome back to Shorts Weather. Today's intro is going to be super short because I'm just so excited to get into this episode with Darcy Malsby. And if you read the title, you probably are too. Really quickly, I want to give a brief disclaimer that there is very, very brief discussion about sexual assault in the workplace. If that is not something you're prepared to hear on today's podcast, uh, this might be a good one to skip over. Like I said, it's a very brief mention, but um, I just wanted to put that out there. I also want to apologize in advance for some okay-ish audio at points. Um, this is a Midwestern podcast, and we know sometimes internet connectivity in the Midwest isn't the greatest. There's parts of today's episode that are a pretty good showcase of that. So with that in mind, I appreciate the grace, and let's just go ahead and jump right into today's episode. This one is going to be a really, really good one. It's so nice to visit and speak and work with somebody who is also, you know, in a creative space who Mm -hmm. thinks this way. Um, (laughs) I know know that I don't have to ask for, you know, I don't have to explain, hey, I need your bio or I need a headshot because like you're already on it. And that's one of the many things that I respect and appreciate about you, Darcy. Oh, well, thank you. I know exactly what you mean. It just makes our lives a lot easier when we have someone who gets how this game is played. So it's all good. (laughs) But I think that really, I think you could even be you're probably more qualified to be doing a podcast than I am, which is why I'm so excited to talk to you today. I will kind of tee it up just a little bit for you. um, And then we'll kind of dive in. So um, I'll make you I'll make you sound pretty good. But I know you'll make yourself sound great. So today's guest is Darcy Malsby. So Darcy is a marketer, a writer and a lover of all things Midwestern. She is best known as Iowa's storyteller and is written for dozens of clients, large and small, including the National Pork Board, the United States Department of State, Iowa Farm Bureau, Syngenta, and more. She's also written six books detailing Iowa history and food. She's a native of Calhoun County, Iowa, and holds two degrees from Iowa State University, a bachelor's in journalism and mass communication, and a master's in business administration. Darcy, I think that your stories and your background makes you even more qualified to be doing a podcast than I am. So I'm really excited to have you today. Well, thank you. It's great to be here with you, Emily. So I think before we get started, um, I mentioned in my last episode with Brad Beyer that the first couple of episodes of Shorts Weather are probably just going to sound um, like I'm just interviewing my friends because I get to know some really cool people. I already know some cool people in my network, and you are one of them. Um, so Darcy, you and I, you know, we worked together um, when I was at Max Shield. You were, um, you know, doing a lot of writing for us. We were a client of yours. And so getting to know you, um, getting to know more about your job, which I, I will just let you explain what all of that entails, because I don't know that anybody can do it as good as you. Um And that was kind of how, you know, we got to know each other, but obviously we've continued, um, you know, the relationship and the friendship and it's good to visit again today. I said, you know, writer, marketer, there's a lot of buzzwords. I think you have the coolest job ever. I didn't even mention some of the speaking and other things that you do. So if somebody said, well, Darcy, what do you do for a living? How would you describe that? Because it's a lot. (laughs) Well, that's why I came up with the catch-all of Iowa's storyteller, because when you do have a lot of diverse things that you do, you try and figure out what's the one thing that it essentially all revolves around. 
and it's storytelling. And when I talk about that, sometimes people in the business world, I think a lot of people know anymore that we're not talking about children's stories and, and fables. And what I'm talking about is true stories well told. And there is such a shortage of those in the business world today. And especially as digital communication and social media, just the, the, the amount of content overload that we're being exposed to every day. There's just a lot of garbage out there. And frankly, after 20 years of being a journalist and covering a lot of meetings, I also whittle this all down to don't be boring. And that's why I'm such a proponent of stories, because there's just so much boring garbage out there of people throwing spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. And I help clients avoid that random let's throw spaghetti at the wall syndrome and my whole mission in life is to help clients uncover their wow stories that really matter to people, that inspire people to dream bigger and help revitalize their rural communities and change the world for the better. So it's not a small mission, but it's definitely something I do every day for clients all over the country. And it's a lot of fun. Well, I tell, I've told you before, I've told other people in conversation about you that I'm like, oh my gosh, Darcy just has the coolest job ever. <laughs> and I think, you know, if you, if you, anybody's listened to my episode with Katie Clark um, a couple of episodes ago, her and I talked about how growing up, you know, it's sometimes easier to tell than you think um, what a person's natural inclinations might be or what a person's good at. You know, the, the child that has a cozy coop and a plastic wrench and is trying to work on it and fix it. Um, is probably going to end up being in some sort of mechanical role um, as a real adult, let's say. So I'm assuming that for you, Darcy, there were things in your childhood that kind of were clues or hints that um, this type of a career was in the future for you. So tell me a little bit about where, where did it all begin? Well, I grew up on a century farm northwest of Lake City out by Yetter. Everything's better in Yetter. And I'm a child of the 80s. So even though you would think there would be some pivotal moment or clear cut sign way back in the day that I would end up specializing in ag journalism and, and morphing into this focus on storytelling and ag, especially there wasn't because this child of the 80s product that I am, basically you were told in not so many words that the farm and agriculture, this is no place for anybody who has any smarts at all. Get a good degree, go to the city, don't come back. And so I thought, okay, well, where does this leave me? Because I really wasn't interested in agriculture all that much because of that. I mean, I didn't hate ag, but I wasn't pursuing a career in it. And I thought, okay, I, I went to Iowa State. At first, I started off at Central College, actually in Pella, because I got a good scholarship. So my goal at that time was to do the overseas study abroad for a semester, which I did. And I was still kind of floundering around for uh, an, a major because I had thought, well, originally I figured I'd probably be a veterinarian because I love animals, but then I decided I didn't like science that much. And so I always thought, okay, well, I guess I'm sort of okay at writing. Maybe I should do something with communications. And so I got to do some really cool stuff in this. It was the spring semester of 1994. So I was actually in my sophomore year of college that at that point. 
I got to be in London, which was fantastic. And I got to do all kinds of arts and entertainment work. So I'd be riding the, the subway, the tube all over the city, going to theater premieres and stuff like that. About as far removed from agriculture as you can get. And it was a great semester and I learned a ton. But then my dad was saying, you know, maybe if you are thinking about going into communication, you might want to look at agriculture just because there's a lot of kids that go into writing and communication work, journalism, but they don't have that ag background. So why not give yourself a leg up with a niche in agriculture? And I thought, you know, that's not a bad idea. And of course, by this point of living in one of the biggest cities in the world, I wasn't really thrilled about going back to Pella, Iowa, because it's just, it's, it was a small town. I knew about small towns. I wanted to try something a little bigger, a little different. And Iowa State was the natural fit, especially with the ag background that I started thinking about. And, you know, a seed that had been planted back in high school actually kind of sparked that interest in, well, yeah, maybe ag's not such a bad idea after all. Because when I was a sophomore in high school, I had an FFA teacher who, well, he wasn't my FFA teacher at the time, but he had decided he wanted to recruit some new talent to FFA. And he said to the biology teacher, if Darcy can pass her tests in biology, can she just cut class all the time and come over to the ag building? Now, remember, I'm 15, 16 years old. When I get <laughs> hit up with a proposition like this, like, yeah, if you can just pass your test, you can cut class perpetually. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so, of course, I signed up for ag and and that did plant a seed of, you know, there there might be a career here. I don't know what the future holds. We're coming off the end of the farm crisis and heading into the 90s at this point. You know, maybe, maybe there's some hope. So I go to Iowa State and they didn't have ag journalism at the time. So I kind of had to piece a major together. And I did that. And so I took the I took all the hardcore sciences. I had the ANSI and the agronomy and the genetics classes. And then the summer of 95, I actually got an internship at Living History Farms down in Urbandale, which was great. It just changed my life. It was so much fun because I'm a history head at heart. That's one of my all-time passions. So I joke with people, if the end of the world comes, I can milk a cow by hand, I can cook on a cook stove with corn cobs, and I can run a treadle sewing machine. So I'm coming so, to your house when the world ends. Right, right. <laughs> so what was also great about learning all those real practical skills, and I became a lot better cook because I had to cook for threshers, literally at Living History Farms. But in addition to that, I got a big chunk of college credits because Iowa State and, um, well, actually it was just Living History Farms had a partnership with Graceland University in Lamoni. So I had enough of a bunch of history credits, I could get a dual major if I took a few more history classes. So by the time I got out of Iowa State, I was a journalism grad and a history grad. And then off I was into the, the wonderful working world. <laughs> so I know you mentioned the farm crisis as a piece of kind of your um, maybe it wasn't your trajectory, but it set your trajectory. And I'm assuming that most people listening to this, especially at this point, are at least familiar with the farm crisis. But for anyone who isn't, um, would you be able to give just kind of a synopsis of mostly what the farm crisis was and kind sure. of what it meant for ag in the heartland? 
Yeah, absolutely. So in to lead up to where we get to the farm crisis, you have to go back to the 70s. And I always say if you couldn't make money in farming in the 70s, there was something seriously wrong with you. It was just there was it was easy to make money back then and and people were expanding like crazy and you know that whole deal of a rising tide lifts all boats it's fine to buy more farm and more equipment and everything than maybe you can really afford because it's the go-go times and everything is is always one step ahead so you can keep that game up but then there were a number of factors that changed things including a a russian grain embargo and there were just all these factors start turning everything around 180 degrees interest rates are going through the roof into double digit realms people are losing their farms definitely by 1982 we start seeing a lot of these hard times on the farm really taking hold And as it turned out, about a third of the people um, completely lost their farms and about a third really struggled financially. They maybe made it through, but it was very, very difficult. And about a third were financially stable enough that it was still tough times, but they could weather those tough times. But it was just shocking how many people left farming at that time. And that's why it was clear to me, boy, I, there's just no future here. I don't know that agriculture is, holds any appeal to me. So that did start to, the farm crisis started to lose its grip by uh, the late 80s. But in a nutshell, that's what it was all about. But I know in talking to my parents who, you know, both came from farming families, um, you know, people were still shell-shocked by the farm crisis, even whenever you want to kind of pinpoint the the time or the year where it was over, which I'm sure a lot of people would give you a lot of different answers because it wasn't just an event. It was a series of lots of events. But mm-hmm. even after it was, quote, over, I think a lot of people were still shell-shocked, you know, well into the next decade and even into, you know, well into the 90s because, you know, they saw it happen once. They were afraid it was going to happen again. And it sounds like that kind of influenced even, like you said, your college career path and what you at that time had decided to do with your future. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose it's kind of, I don't, maybe a loose equivalent would be when grandparents and great grandparents went through the Great Depression. Those things are so profound and so all encompassing to what it means to your life. You don't forget those things very easily. I feel like there's always some big things that you can pull out of you know, what defines your college choice and then what defines what you do after college as really for any time in your life. Um, But as I was getting ready for this and thinking about what I wanted to pick your brain about, um, I went and I stalked your LinkedIn because again, I know you, but a good reminder of kind of what the timing of college and different jobs were for you. And I'm looking at, you know, okay, journalism degree from Iowa State and kind of the, the mid to late 90s. Okay. And I thought to myself, well, gee, that would be really close or right during kind of the dot-com bubble era. And, you know, I'd imagine that, you know, as the idea of the internet was becoming more commonplace and you were getting a degree in journalism, I'm guessing that at least your coursework, the types of work that you prepared for in your mind, and if I'm wrong, please, you know, correct me, but I kind of guess that you were preparing mostly for print media, print journalism. 
Was there ever a fear right as you were getting done with college that, holy shit, the internet might take the job market away from me in journalism? You're right about the first part, not about the last part. So the internet was just becoming a thing when I was at Iowa State. I remember sitting in a computer lab with some of my friends and I don't, it was some sort of a chat room thing. And we were talking to a bunch of guys at some university in California. <laughs> and I just thought, this is incredible. But it wasn't part of any of our classes other than maybe one occasionally. And you're right. I was trained for print journalism. I loved magazines. I still do. From, but my whole life, I've loved magazines. So that was my emphasis in the journalism track. And I, I don't know that anybody at that time foresaw what a revolution was just barreling down the tracks at us very fast. We were in this little time period there where we were still being trained. I mean, when I, the, now that I think about it, Emily, with my journalism classes, I was trained how to develop photos in a dark room. Really? Yeah. I mean, we had to have been one of the last classes that actually did that, but things like Photoshop and, and everything that we know today, that, that was not anything I was trained in. So we were truly the end of an era and nobody had any idea how profound this dot-com thing was going to be, but I would learn real fast because it's one of the things that led to what I do now. That's interesting because as I think, and again, this is all just kind of my assumptions or me trying to put myself in that time period, my first instinct is to think, well, I would be afraid for the job market because it would be, in my mind, oh, really easy to see what was coming. But like you said, there was nothing that compared to the internet. I mean, there still isn't now, but there really wasn't at that time. And I guess, you know, you think about the dot-com bubble, even on the stock market, all of that was very speculative. People really didn't know they thought they knew, they made good guesses, or in the case of kind of the burst of the bubble, bad guesses maybe, um, depending on what side of the fence you were on. But yeah, it it would be hard to even grasp the idea of the internet and how, how it could even influence journalism, for example, because yeah, nobody, nobody knew where it was nobody, headed. Nobody knew where it was headed. Honestly, if anything, it looked kind of like a high-end toy at that time, just something fun to play around with. And But I learned real fast by my third job out of college. I always call my life three strikes and you're out, my early career, because I did work full-time in corporate America in central Iowa for about six years out of college. The first go-round, I had verbally abusive bosses, and so I left that job. The second job where I did more PR, then I had a sexual harassment problem with the CEO. <laughs> so I left that job. So I was me too before there was me too. And then I end up in a dot-com company in West Des Moines. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I was an ag editor. I enjoyed the work so much. And I was so young and I was so far removed from all the business decision-making. I didn't know how they made their money and I just know that things were going great and there was all this money and we had a lot of fun. Well, then I learned real fast within about two years. So we're talking about 2000 to 2000, early 2002, when early 2002 is when it all came crashing down because then I learned terms like cash burn and yes, old business principles really do apply. See, it was like the wild west in those days with these dot-com companies by this point, people knew that this had the potential to be big and people were becoming millionaires 
in these dot-com companies almost overnight if they had the, the right dot-com. And so there's all this angel investor money pouring into these companies. The one I was with, no one ever stopped to figure out how do you actually generate money. They didn't have to because they had all these investors just dumping bucket loads of money into them on the hope that it would somehow magically turn into a profitable company. But it didn't. And that's when the crap hit the fan and they started laying off people left and right. And it's really humiliating to get uh, a police escort out of the building just because you've been laid off with a bunch of your coworkers. I, I just hated the whole experience. It was so demoralizing. It was dehumanizing. And I thought, I have done absolutely nothing wrong here. And here I am being treated more or less like a criminal. Just here's the door, get out and don't come back. And I said, you know, I will never, ever let myself be this vulnerable again because I was 28 years old. I was all lined up to go to graduate school and I thought I knew what my future was. And then I just get kicked out the door overnight. And I, to this day that it doesn't haunt me, but it's always in the back of my head. And that's one of the things that motivates me because I will never, ever let myself be that vulnerable again. Did you and your team have any idea that was coming or were you just at work one day and then told you don't need to come tomorrow? Looking back on it, there were a few little signs here and there that that's probably what was coming, but I was so young and naive. I hadn't been through anything like that before, so I didn't know how to read the tea leaves. Now I would probably know exactly what was coming, but yeah, it came as a real shock to me and that's why I took it so hard. I think that compares to, you know, so in your generation, it was the internet, the dot-com companies. I think about the kind of the hip, cool, money-hungry and money-dumping companies of my generation, you know, because I'm a pretty recent college grad in the last couple of years. It's the tech startups. I can think of, you know, folks I went to college with who went to various tech startups, some ag, some not. And there's some that are, you know, it's a high risk, high reward type situation. I went for a stable job. It's pretty good that it's probably going to be there tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And there's not going to be a lot of, most of the time, a lot of rapid changes in a job like that. But if what you're chasing is the clout or the kind of getting in early on something before it is big, those tech companies can be the place to go. Um, But at the same time, I also think of some that went to college with me who were on their second or third job, not because they've gotten fired, not Mm -hmm. because, you know, they underperform, but because the tech companies they work with are either bought out or they close down. So, you know, we act like that. Our generation acts like, well, it's a problem of our generation. It's never happened before. Okay. The technology, it's different. But like you said, it happened with the dot-com era, you know, 20 years ago. Um, I'd imagine that there would be something like that in the 70s, too. That There's always something like that. You're exactly right. And I know that as a historian, and I want everybody listening to this to realize that, because that was the biggest myth that I saw people falling for in those late 90s, early 2000s era. 
people that should have known better thought that somehow the old rules of business don't apply. Well, the internet did change everything, but it didn't change things like actually having to produce a product that people valued and wanted and being able to turn a legitimate profit. So this idea that somehow some technology is so new, so revolutionary that all the old rules don't apply, that's a bunch of crap. And if you ever get in a situation like that where the people around you are acting like that, I would suggest that you run. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's pretty solid advice spoken like somebody who's been trained in business, which is funny because you are. Um, So you mentioned that during your time at that dot-com company, you were prepared to go to grad school. Um, In your intro, I mentioned you did have an MBA. So what happened? So you kind of, the terrible thing no one ever wants to have happen to them happens to you and you don't have a job one day, what were kind of the next steps for you to get up, dust yourself off and move on? Yeah. Okay. So I got fired on a, like a early February. I don't remember the exact date, but it was early February, 2002. I'd just gotten back from a vacation, you know, welcome back. Right. (laughs) And then I find out, Oh, I won't be working here anymore. So literally the next day, after I kind of cried and licked my wounds that night, the next day I went back to Farm News in Fort Dodge. I called him up because that's where I'd done one of my college internships. And remember, I'm trained as a print journalist. And so I just said, hey, can I do some extra freelancing for you? And they said, yes. And anybody that knows anything about newspapers knows that the pay is not stellar by any means. So I certainly was not flush with cash. It was really touch and go for quite a while. And But you get six months unemployment because of the circumstances I was in. Now, once again, unemployment will barely keep you afloat. But I thought, okay, I've always kind of had this dream in the back of my mind. Wouldn't it be cool if I could actually start my own company? And even when I was still working for the dot-com, I figured, you know, I don't, my business skills aren't good. They don't teach you business in J school. So I took, because I was living in the Des Moines Metro at the time out by Grimes. I took some classes at DMAC in marketing just to see if I would like it. Because I thought, ooh, I don't want to go off and (laughs) get a whole new degree that I end up hating. But I really liked it. And so I knew that I was on the right track. And I had this six month window where I could basically pay my bills. If I, and if I could get something going, I was still going to start graduate school that August. That was a done deal because it was night school at Iowa state, but I really wanted to get something a little more stable with my own business. Fortunately, I had a neighbor at the time who worked for Iowa realty. She was the director of marketing. And she knew my situation and she said, well, you know, maybe you should just do some freelance stuff for me. We we have some housing developments and whatnot where we could use some good copywriting. Would you be interested? And I said, you bet I would. So between farm news and starting with Iowa Realty, once again, not flush with cash. I always tell when I talk to high school kids, I say back then, I think the difference in price between a McDonald's hamburger and cheeseburger was about a dime. But I remember agonizing one night like, oh, I really want that cheeseburger. But that extra dime, I mean, it's getting kind of crazy if I spend extra money I don't have. So I mean, (laughs) that's how touch and go it was. But you, I just kept building bit by bit by bit. 
and I didn't spend foolishly and I was able to piece it together. And then I ended up starting grad school. That was so tough though, because I had just this little sliver of a business started by August of 02. Then I go to grad school. So I'd be going to school all night down in downtown Des Moines. And you've got a ton of homework when you're in grad school. So there'd be a lot of times I'd get home from class 10 or 1030 at night. I would try and eat or get some work done or whatever, fall into bed. There were days I was up at 3 a.m. starting all over again. So you're running on nothing but fumes. But I was just so determined, like I said, that that fear, that hunger, I will never let myself be this vulnerable again. That propelled me through. And so then by summer or fall, I, can't, I think it was summer of 04, I had the master's degree with the, the marketing um, emphasis for my MBA. So so I did it. And the business is still here all these years later. And, you know, for about the first seven years, they always say seven's the magic year. If you can make it seven years, you're probably going to make it because most of it, small businesses fail long before seven years. But I remember for a long time, I kept thinking, is this the year that maybe I can't pull this off anymore? Like I say, those you always feel like these these wolves chasing you. Will I be able to outrun the wolves? But I don't feel that way anymore because I know I bring value to clients and we can talk more about that later. But it's never bad to have that hunger always in the back of your mind. It's a great motivator. Well, I think, you know, like you said, most small businesses do fail. I don't have the stats, but I've heard that one as well. You know, I've heard that one quantified of what percentage fail within the first two or three years and obviously yours did not. But I think even, you know, I today I can think again, I want to talk about, you know, the kids or the people I went to college with, people my age. I can think of a lot that have started either full-time gigs or kind of side gigs. Was Were there a lot of people at the time you started doing what you did? Were there a lot of other people trying to make that happen? And were they successful? That's a great question. And, you know, at the time, there's always been freelance writers. That's a pretty standard thing. But I distinctly remember when I got let go from the company in West Des Moines, the dot com, around that time, it was 06 when my husband and I had the chance to buy land back here in Calhoun County and move back here. And I decided to keep my Des Moines cell phone number, which I still have. It's a 515 rather than a 712 area code, because I just was so concerned that people at the time would say, oh, man, you know, my Des Moines clients. Oh, this 712 thing. She moved to outer Siberia. I don't know. I'm not comfortable doing business with someone so far away, even though it's 100 miles from Des Moines. But that shows you how much times have changed. So, yeah, there were always freelance writers around, but this idea of um, working from home, outsourcing work, that was still kind of a weird, unusual, not real common concept in the mid-2000s. Well, and I think knowing, knowing your story and from a client side, knowing how you work, how you operate, I could give a couple reasons why I think you've been successful. Um, you know, maybe they would differ even from the reasons you would give, but I think one of your, you know, essential strengths, kind of your secret sauce is both your storytelling abilities and the emphasis or the power you put behind storytelling and the importance that you give storytelling. 
this is a very open-ended question. It's probably a poorly worded question, but I am curious where you take it. What's your philosophy on storytelling? I call storytelling the ultimate power tool. It's like any tool in a toolbox where if all you've got's a hammer, everything's a nail. Okay, so that's not always good a great situation. It storytelling is not the answer for everything, but it's the answer for a whole lot of things. Because it used like when I started my career, as you pointed out, it was much more of a, a print world and we didn't have this onslaught. I mean, if you ever look at the digital onslaught, there's a thing called what happens in an Internet minute. It's a pie chart and whoever produces it updates it every year. But it's just remarkable the literally millions of pieces of content being created and and streamed our way every single minute of the day. And so if you don't have a, an effective way to cut through the clutter and try and get your message heard, it just falls on deaf ears or if, you know, and that's at best. At worst, it does somehow get through, but it sounds stupid and self-serving. I, I call it wee-weeing all over clients. If And I see even big companies do this all the time. If you look at some of their content, we do this, we do that. I just saw it with a, an ag company that should know better, that has fairly deep pockets, and they produced a video that was nothing more than we know ag. We are in this for the long haul. We are here to help the farmer. Well, no kidding. This is stupid. This is boring. Quit wasting my time. That's wee-weeing all over the customer. It's terrible. It should never happen. And it won't happen with good storytelling. Well, we, <laughs> kind of tag onto that, we've had conversations at length you know, especially when we worked on projects together about the power of storytelling, the power of angles. But one of my favorite conversations I know that you and I have had is don't tell a story that doesn't matter. Don't tell a story that no one's going to care about. Right. I think, you know, as somebody who has worked in marketing communications, not, you know, as long as a lot of the people I look up to, but, you know, for the first few years of my career, that was my life. And there's times where I do miss that. I think about some of the fundamental things that kind of drove my day. So if a bus driver has to always remember all day long to drive on the right side of the road in America, <laughs> my <laughs> version of that was don't tell stories that don't matter. You know, if you're right. working on a social media post, okay, is anybody gonna, or is anyone going to care that this is posted? Now, granted, there's a few times where there's obligatory things that you have to post, but 90% of the time, if it doesn't matter, don't post it. And tell stories the way they need to be told, because if you don't tell your story, whether you're a business or just yourself, if you don't tell your story, someone else will. That is the that's so true, Emily. And you know, the thing, let's go back and define really what a story is, because I was just doing a training session with Western Iowa Tourism last week. And one of the things we talked about is what is a story? It sounds like a dumb question, but you have to be really clear. And it's not a hard answer once you understand what a story is. But like I say, even big companies do not understand this. We were looking at Marriott Hotel's website under a, a heading they call Our Story. It looked a lot like a mission statement, not a story. So what's a story? Well, think about your favorite childhood stories where it's 
it's a certain thing happening in a certain time in a certain place with a specific character, a hero that's trying to overcome some type of a villain and reach a goal. So that's one way to look at story. And if you don't have that, then you probably have a mission statement or a bullet point list or whatever you've got, but it's not a story. The other thing I teach when I train audiences is to tell a story. I highly recommend you follow a format called the ABT. And I didn't make up the ABT. I wish I was smart enough to have thought it up myself, but there's a guy named Randy Olson that's a evolutionary biologist turned Hollywood screenwriter <laughs> that uh, talks a lot about the ABT. And that's, I heard him talking about it on a podcast. So ABT and, but therefore. So in the case of my own life, the and is the part of the story where you, it's the setup. It's the normal world. So I, w I grew up on a farm and I went to college and I wasn't sure what I wanted to major in. And I ended up going to Iowa State and getting a journalism degree. Now, what most people do is they will get stuck in the and. And I did this and this and this and that. But that's really boring. You need to have the but. And I always say the bigger the but, the better. The but is the explosion. The but is the turning point. It's the pivot point where everything changes. So in my case, I'd gone to college, gotten the degree, started working in corporate America, but I had all these three strikes and you're out issues from sexual harassment to this explosion of this dot-com company. And I, I got laid off. Therefore, so now we're in the to the T part of the ABT. Therefore, I finally had the the um, time and maybe the nothing to lose attitude of starting my own company, and I've been running Darcy Malsby and Company ever since. So, in a nutshell, that's how ABT works. Think of your own favorite movies or books. They're all built on the ABT. Once you know that little structure, you'll never watch a movie or read a book the same way. Because now you'll know why a movie that you don't like is boring. Most likely it's stuck in the and, 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 and there's no turning point that really matters. I, one of my favorite movies of all time is It's a Wonderful Life. There's this guy named George Bailey, and he grows up in this small town, and he's got big dreams about conquering the world. But all these things keep happening that, that block his, his goals, and he gets really frustrated and to the point where he's thinking about jumping off a bridge and killing himself. And then, but there comes this guardian angel to help him see what life would have been like had George Bailey never been born. And he realizes he does have a wonderful life and wants to live. Therefore, he rushes back to his family and friends with a renewed zest for life and, and gratitude for all the gifts he's been given. So that is an ABT. That is a story. And those are the types of stories that people remember and they pass them on to their friends. And, and those are two very powerful things in marketing. We want our messages to be memorable. We want them to resonate with people to the point that they want to share them with friends and family. Well, I think too, there's the story and then the storytelling, which obviously are related, but they're two different things. And I think that you and I, you know, we talk about stories versus storytelling kind of synonymously, but good stories don't have to be elaborate if they're told well. I think of a conversation you and I had, um, you know, one of the last times that we had been together working on a project. And in my town, there was a building with 
um, kind of an old faded, you know, at one time it had been like a general store type store, um, like an old downtown building, you know, now there's a consignment shop and some other things in there. But at one time they had sold Oshkosh Bagash clothing. And there was a kind of a faded sign, worn sign on the side of the building that had been painted on, um, you know, who knows, maybe in the 40s um, and has since kind of worn away. And it's right uptown next to the restaurant, the only restaurant in my little town. And we were going to go up there for lunch and you and I pulled up and parked and you're like, oh, there's a ghost sign. Like, what, Darcy, what are you talking about? <laughs> are you crazy? <laughs> and I'm like, uh you're going to, is this a generational thing? Like you're going to have to elaborate a little and, oh, well, you know, you go on about how this has probably been at least a year ago, if not two, but you were working, well, I'd like to do a project or story, a piece on ghost signs and old signage um, around Iowa or in, you know, rural towns. And I thought, oh, that's, you know, that's kind of interesting. It's something I wouldn't think of. Um, and it's definitely a very, very narrowed down topic. Well, then six months later, fast forward, and I see that you had written a story like that for a client and using that exact idea that you had talked about to me of ghost signs. So to me, the story of old signs that are worn down and you can't read them on buildings that probably are going to be torn down in some towns at some point. The way I just described it is not a very good story. That's probably not <laughs> something anybody's going to ask to read. However, I read the piece that you had written for that client. I'd seen it come up in one of my feeds and it was a good, interesting story. Now, a lot of that is your abilities, but it's the way that you tell a story. And I think that is just as important as what the kind of the bones or the quote facts of the story is. How often does that influence the way that you pick stories for a client or have a client maybe think differently about what their story is? Well, the first thing with any good communication and storytelling is you always consider the needs of the audience. So what does that audience need? Do they need specific information to educate them? Do they are they looking for entertainment figure out how you can best serve them and then you build you pick the right story so stories are around us all the time people just don't recognize them as such just like that ghost sign example you gave but in this case the piece that i wrote for fresh pickens magazine that you're referring to um, for the iowa food and family project the reason the ghost sign was interesting beyond, oh yeah, I never noticed those before. They're kind of cool in a weird artsy sort of way when you look at them. The bigger picture there was all about how these are really relevant to historic preservation. And you know, that that's a whole story in itself. That's why I wrote a two or three page feature on it. But, but yeah, it, I don't know that most people would spot that as a story, but once you start training your brain to see the world a little bit differently, it's all about what kind of meaning, what are these universal truths in these events that happen around us every day? If something resonates with you, that's probably a key. You're on to something that's a story. Now it's up to you to figure out how to shape that story and present the right story to the right audience at the right time and help meet a need that they have. In this case, it would be entertainment and just, uh, 
shining the spotlight on the value of historic preservation as told through the lens of these ghost signs. But you have to start with the needs of the audience. And because your audience can have diverse needs, depending on which niche of the audience you're talking to, that's why it's important to have a variety of these stories in your back pocket. You talk about this skill of being able to not only identify a story, but then also be able to apply it to a concept, like you said, something that a client's audience wants or needs. Would you say that's a kind of natural born trait that someone like yourself has? Or is that something that has to be learned? And how do you learn that? It's a combination of both. So every last human being on earth is their brain is wired for story. That's how human beings told shared important vital information, life-saving information for eons long before we had the written word and before we had print media, digital media, it was all storytelling passed down through the generations. So we are, our brains are innately wired for story and we know a good story when we hear it. When someone presents it well, we like to hear stories, but storytelling itself is very much a skill, just like that ABT. I don't think most people, myself included, just figure that out naturally. And I've taken classes, I've done a lot of studying, read a lot of books about this, to see storytelling in action and to learn techniques that work. So I would say anyone can learn the skills, but it does take, it's like any skill. It just, the pros make it look easy. Just like a pro athlete makes playing football <laughs> look easy, uh, but it can be learned, but it does take time and effort. You know, I, I think back to a few years ago when I was down in Des Moines, I was at Prairie Meadows and I was out covering the Renewable Fuels Association annual meeting and the keynote was great because it was Aaron Brockovich. So the, the, the real Aaron Brockovich, not Julia Roberts from the movie Aaron Brockovich, but the real deal. And she was talking about Superman isn't coming and how we all need to step up and be leaders and do what we can to protect water quality in our own backyard. And she just told the story after story after story of her life, of how she challenged corporations and, and powerful figures to, to do the right thing and to make a healthier environment for people. It was all these stories of things she had done in her life, pointing out, hey, if I can do it, you can too. Now, this wonderful keynote, which had everyone riveted, was followed by, a, I'm sure, a very intelligent man. He had a PhD. He knew everything there was to know about um, the chemistry of biofuels. I, he was talking about polymerase something or other. I don't know. I'm sure what he was talking about had the power to revolutionize the world in a good way. But I, I noticed people started looking at their phones. They started drifting out of the room. This science that he was sharing was so complex, so over our heads, it didn't seem relevant. We knew it was important, but we didn't get why it was important. And because he's such a poor communicator, brilliant mind, terrible communicator, we were all bored and people weren't paying attention. And I'm sure it's a loss for humanity because we weren't getting what he was saying. But it was such a stark contrast between Aaron Brockovich, who barely got out of high school, much less she's no PhD, but she understands the power of storytelling versus this brilliant man with all kinds of degrees that couldn't communicate in a way that was speaking human. That's the power of stories. 
We've all been there, whether it's a conference, like you've given an example, watching a TED Talk online, even a meeting at work, or I can think of lots of examples in school, you know, sitting, watching somebody who's, you know, giving a good presentation versus a not so good presentation. And even if it's not active, you do find yourself tuning out of boring, boring conversations, boring presentations. If there's not that storytelling element that's there to really keep you keep you tied in and really keep your ears open, how difficult, or maybe it's not difficult for, you know, clients and people you work with to understand, you know, that's what you do. That's the skill set you bring is helping transform their stories or their their pieces of a story into something that's cohesive. I can think of times you know, when I was at MaxShield, you were working and writing for us where we would be interviewing somebody on our team about a topic that at face value maybe isn't so exciting. You know, let's say microbial activity in soil. And mm-hmm. you can tell the person, the team member that you're interviewing and chatting with to get details to write that story. They're like, this is, nobody's going to want to read this. Nobody's going to really care about this. You know, it's kind of boring to most people. They don't have a lot of faith in the process of storytelling. What is the most powerful thing that you can do to help people believe in the power of telling stories other than obviously writing a really powerful story? (laughs) You know, I wish I had the answer to that. Sometimes that is the best way to try and, and show people the power of storytelling. Although honestly, a lot of times when people come to me, as prospects that want to maybe want to be clients, they've realized that they've screwed everything up. They've tried to do marketing the old way. They, they just do a hard sell and talk about how great their product is. And they, especially if they have a a business background or an accounting or a, a numbers or a science background, God bless them. But you know, the, the numbers, the science, it's so clear. All that should just speak for itself. And I put it out there and nobody cares. And I said, yeah, I know it's a, it's not that what you've got there isn't important, but it's the way you frame it. And that's why the story is important. So sometimes people just have to learn the hard way by screwing it up themselves as much as I hate to say that. Uh, but that seems to be the thing that starts opening eyes when they try all the, they try and do it themselves. They try and do the, go the cheap route. They try and do whatever they think is marketing and storytelling and it doesn't work. And then they know that they need some help. And, you know, it's frustrating. I've dealt with this my whole career that it's this idea that writing is easy. Okay. Cause we all learned how to write the basics uh, in grade school. So Oh yeah, writing's easy. It's a lot of fun. People are absolutely shocked when I say I don't like to write. And I mean it when I say I don't like to write. But I like having written. The best part about writing is it crystallizes your thinking. And I like to think and I like to think deep thoughts and I like to be a connector that connects the dots. Writing lets me do that. But I say writing is hard. There's an old adage that is so true. If it reads easy, it wrote hard. If it reads hard, it wrote easy. So that's saying that if something is just a a joy to to read, or it's a video that's so compelling that, yeah, it's a two minute video, but it just flies by versus 
the really boring articles where you're just falling asleep at the first or second paragraph or those really boring, tedious videos where it's only two minutes, but gosh, I'm already just losing my mind here at, at about 20 or 30 seconds. That's the difference between someone who knows how to tell a story and someone who's just kind of throwing spaghetti at the wall. I'm really glad that you made the point you just did about easy writing and, you know, if something, if it's kind of like going to a restaurant, if something tastes really good, it probably took a long time to make. Not always, um, but there probably was a lot of skill that went into it, even if it's just something simple, like a chocolate cookie, chocolate chip cookie, chocolate cake is a lot different than going to the store and getting a tube of cookie dough, which I'll be honest, I'm also not above that, but it's, it's different. It's two <laughs> different things. <laughs> you know, that's a really, really great analogy, Emily. I'd never thought of it that way, but you're so right. Because when I give my culinary history of Iowa program, I always talk about Ma Ingalls butter cookies. I tell people, hey, here's the cooking portion of the program. And it fits beautifully with what you're saying, because these cookies, they're very simple. I mean, this is pioneer cooking. There's only about five ingredients tops in these things. It's flour and butter and ginger and, and vanilla and the egg. Is, it's about, that's about as complex as they are. But they're really good if you do them right. Now, I have seen people screw up these cookies. And so that's why I tell my audience when something is this simple in theory, that's why some of the foundational aspects of this matter more than ever. So you you want really good, high quality ingredients going into these cookies. Don't use the cheap margarine because it's full of water. Use real butter. Don't use the artificial vanilla that's got that kind of bitter taste. Use real vanilla. And then the technique of how you cream the butter and sugar. All these things matter when even if something looks deceptively simple, like storytelling, a good story just, just flows and is so interesting. And you think, oh, this is easy. Anybody could do this. But there's actually a lot of thinking and a lot of specific framework that goes into making that easy for the reader or the viewer that that's the payoff and that's it's just that hard and that simple so i loved your cooking analogy it fits beautifully i think this ties everything from where we started to now it ties it together everything that we've talked about you and i you and i've talked today we've talked before how much content is available to us i mean you think of something like wikipedia even it doesn't have to be social media there are so many pages and topics on Wikipedia, nobody could ever even attempt to make a dent in reading them all. Right. So there's lots and lots of content. There's no shortage of content, but it's that quality over quantity right. mindset and that if a story doesn't matter, doesn't need to really be told at all. I've gone through phases in my life where I've done a lot of writing, not much writing, and I really struggled with that to feel like, you know, if I'm writing a blog post, for example, oh, I want to write a blog every week or I need to write a blog post every month. And I've gotten so much more into the mindset of if, you know, just write when I want to write and when I feel like I have something to write. And I'll be honest, about the last year, that hasn't been very much. Um, mm -hmm. Things have been busy. Um, I don't feel like I've had, you know, the bandwidth to write maybe as part of it, but I've gotten out of that mindset that I need to create content just to create content. Now, right. consistency is always good, 
but if it doesn't matter, what's the point? Right. I'd rather have people not creating content that's just not very good or just uh, the spaghetti at the wall, as I say. If you if I, if you're just going to be a, a clanging gong and adding to an already noise filled world without adding value, please don't. But if you can add value, please do, because the world is just desperate for good quality information. You know, we're we're drowning in information, like you said, but starving for knowledge. And sometimes I have clients say stuff like that. Well, why should we be producing more content? Our our farmers, our audience could find this if they just Googled. And I said, yeah, they probably could. But frankly, A, who has time to do that? B, there's so much stuff out there, it's overwhelming. And C, the biggest one of all, how do you know you can trust what's out there on the internet? Some is some information is very trustworthy and reliable, and some is written by complete crackpots. I would much rather try and position myself as the expert and the thought leader to build trust rather than just to throw content out there because, oh, the editorial calendar says it's time for a blog post. In today's day and age, too, even from a business perspective, but obviously all of us, we're surprisingly trusting of strangers content on the internet and I don't just mean that in oh somebody's grandma you know fell for a link that they needed to send money to a Saudi Arabian prince but take kind of the the wild extremes out of it but even just like you said a blog post or something on social media that maybe it isn't even ill-intentioned but it's not correct it's not accurate as much as we know and as much information as we have access to, we're still very trusting of what the rest of the world is saying about the topics we care about. And maybe we shouldn't be sometimes. Yeah, I, I agree, Emily, that, you know, the old joke before the Internet world. Well, you know, if it's on TV, it's got to be true. Ha ha ha. But yet I see people every day that that's really kind of how they think because something is on TV, it must be true or it's on the internet. That's actually one of the banes of my existence as an ag communicator. I'm on Farm Bureau's farm team, for example, and that's where you're trying to connect with consumers and share facts and true stories well told about the realities of agriculture rather than misinformation that is so abundant in so many platforms. And it just it's maddening because someone sees something on the evening newscast or they see some someone they may or may not know online talking about such and such somehow because they hear it they see it it's in a tangible form uh, well it, it must be true um no 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 not necessarily i know we've said it once we've we'll say it again i'm hoping as you know like my generation, that I can remember a time without the internet, but not very, I mean, the majority of my life has been with the internet. So one of the positive things I'm hoping comes out of more generations being acclimated to the internet is that we have more of a keen eye for false information on the internet. But I guess time will tell if that's the case or not. Yeah, it's it's really that's a key point, Emily. It's really important to be able to discern information. And I remember when I was in journalism school, one of the things they said is if you start hearing the same facts at least three or more times from different sources, 
it, you, you probably are on the right track. You probably don't need to dig a whole lot deeper because you've probably gotten pretty close to the truth. And I always tell people, keep that in mind. Don't just go with the first thing that comes up when you Google. Don't just go with the first thing that someone's blabbing about online. Do some, do try and dig a little bit deeper. And then don't be afraid to really go to the extremes too, because the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. So I always said with politics, when Rush Limbaugh was alive, listen to his show and listen to CNN or whatever you consider to be something more on the left side of the spectrum. And then I'm guessing that probably somewhere in the middle of those two is probably a little bit closer to the truth. So just don't take things at face value and try and do a little bit of homework. I know we're all busy people, but that's part of being a, a responsible citizen. It's part of discerning the truth. And whenever I speak to audiences, and I'll say it to your audience today too, don't take my word for any of this. Go ahead and do your own research. I know I've got the facts behind me and I know what I'm talking about is true, but feel free to question me and dig deeper and find your own answers because A, I don't have all the answers. I have a lot of experience and I've worked with a lot of clients and I know what works, but I also know there's more to learn. But I would challenge anybody, go out and do your own homework and that is one of the keys to being a discerning, savvy customer that's really going to help put good content into the world. True stories well told. Well, and I think I speak for anybody that's worked with you that your, you know, kind of magic, your secret sauce has been digging deep, asking questions. I've spent so much time already asking you questions about storytelling and haven't even bothered to ask, you know, some of your experiences in your role. I'm sure this is difficult, but what would you say is your favorite story or your favorite project that you've ever worked on? If you can pick one out. <laughs> you know, anything that revolves around history. You know, honestly, one of the things I thought I might do at some point in my career, I took the LSAT and I thought about going to law school because I thought, well, you know, with a background in communications and history, that's a great foundation for law. I think I would have been totally bored as a lawyer, but I mean, God bless them. We need lawyers. Uh, but for my case, that's part of, you talk about the magic, the secret sauce. Uh, that's what I love to do is, is dig deeper and find those, get that backstory, put things in context. That is just so vital. And you know, one thing you, before we started this conversation, when we were off air, we were talking about how I was just working with a client in Minnesota. I think of some of the stories, because you asked me for a specific story. I think of some of the stories we're doing for this particular client, because they were kind of stuck in that mindset of old school marketing of, well, we'll just talk about how great our products are and, and people will see the light and then they'll want to buy stuff and it didn't work for them. And so that's why they came to me. So for example, one of their products is a microbial product that really helps with manure digestion and controlling odor and, and liquefying manure so you can really get it all pumped out of the pit. I know I work with really glamorous topics, right? But hey, it pays the bills. <laughs> you have a really but, shitty job, Darcy. <laughs> I know. I, I sometimes think I should call myself a shitologist because that's one of my areas of expertise. I cut through bullshit and I also write about it. But anyway... <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, we started telling, I said, well, instead of just talking about the product, let's talk to farmers that are actually using this product and having really great results with it. And so that's what I do. I write these case studies and it's so heartening. I mean, I think of a, a farmer in Western Iowa that is a user of this product and, and he told me, I hope my farm didn't smell when you pulled in here. And I said, no, I, I would have never known this was a pig farm, honestly. And he said, good, because I take pride, very much pride in, in the way I farm, the way my farm looks, and I sure don't want my hog barns to smell. And that's one of the things that got me onto this product, because I know that there's a lot of truth to using these little help, beneficial microbes to break down what's in the manure and, and solve some of those odor and, and solids and crusting and fly problems and all that nasty stuff. And you let the good microbes go to work and then you ha you don't have a problem. And so that's how we built the case study of this guy's passion for his farm and doing the right thing and not wanting to be that farmer that had the stinky manure pit where everyone drove by and said, oh, that place stinks. So that is a, an example of digging a little deeper. We, we do get into the science a little bit more in a case study or a story like this about why the microbes work and all that, but we don't lead with that. We talk about a very real issue, which is a guy's pride in his farm and he doesn't want odor and he doesn't want these nasty flies around. And then we talk about the product and why it works and and then you end up with how he's happy and it, it really enhances his farm operation. So those are the types of stories that I like to, to tell because they truly make life better for all of us. And that's a powerful thing. You know, I think so far we've talked mostly about writing and marketing in the sense of, you know, creating content for a business. And that is a big part of what you do. However, I know I've kind of alluded to this already and so have you, but there's other little pieces and kind of I would think of as nuggets to your business and your skill set. And one of my favorite things that you write about that you create content about is food because you're a foodie. I'm a foodie. Always have been, always will be. <laughs> and well, so am I. I mean, we're all obsessed with food and all, everybody's obsessed with food and in the Midwest, especially we are. But you and I both know that you're quite the foodie and especially a foodie when it comes to writing. Tell a little bit about when I say that, you know, elaborate on that. How much of a foodie are you when it comes to writing? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. I, I literally wrote the book on it. I combined all my passions of agriculture and food and history. And so one of my best selling books of all of them I've done is the culinary history of Iowa and I always tell my audiences when I go speak about these books and that one in particular, I was just in Iowa Falls giving this talk the other night. I said, people always ask, well, these you know books, man, they're kind of old school. Why do you mess around with them? Why do you care about these topics? And I said, well, it's probably inevitable that I like talking about food because when you grow up on a farm and you're still part of a farm family, farming is raising food. But that's one thing. But then as an ag journalist, I was coming across all these stories. I mean, I'd be sitting in the kitchens with these wonderful Iowa farm cooks and learning all their their secrets to great traditional ethnic foods like lefsa and things like that, or you know, whatever heritage we're talking about. I know you're from down in more of the southwest part of the state where you know about Abel Skivers and things like that when <laughs> good Danish yep. food. Um, yep. But yeah. 
you know, what I was seeing is that you'd have grandma or great grandma making all these wonderful treats, especially at Christmas, but the younger generations, mom's working, the kids are in a million activities. Everybody's too busy to actually learn these culinary traditions themselves. And I thought it's not enough. It's just not enough to document this in newspaper articles or on a blog post because this stuff is so temporal. The newspapers get old and yellow and faded and thrown away. Um, digital content yeah technically is out there forever but if something's 10 years old is it that easy to find and you know i just was concerned that why not really put these stories in an old school paperback book because that book is going to be as useful 100 years from now as it is today and i'm finding out there's a lot of people that still like old school paperback books and they always say that you should write the book that you want to read. So when I found out that my publisher, see, I'd done one book by this point. It's about my first one came out in 2015. It was a history of Calhoun County, which is my county. Then I realized there's this other division of my publisher that had this cool series of books called The Culinary History Of. And I'd seen one for Kentucky, which introduced me to great Kentucky foods like hot browns and burgoo and stuff like that. And I thought, wow, this would be really cool to pick up the culinary history of Iowa. I'd love to read that. Well, you know what? There was no culinary history of Iowa book. So you write the book you'd like to read. And that's what I did. And and it's been great fun to talk about all kinds of Iowa culinary traditions, including the famous or infamous, depending on how you want to look at it, chili and cinnamon rolls. Oh, and this is something you became slightly LinkedIn famous over very recently. I remember seeing all of this kind of hash out over LinkedIn posts, and <laughs> it ended up taking you virtually to the Smithsonian. Yeah, isn't that crazy? So I thought growing up in Lake City, Iowa, that every school kid on earth had this wonderful combination of chili and cinnamon rolls for school lunch. And then I find out when I'm doing my book, no, not every Iowa kid even knows what chili and cinnamon rolls are. They never had them. And really? Yeah. yeah. Not even and, in and Iowa? Not even in Iowa. And I can't find a pattern. I thought, well, maybe it's a Western Iowa thing versus Eastern Iowa. No, no, no. It's it's more random than that. And then even surrounding states. There Now, in Nebraska, some people are quite familiar with this. But I have a friend that grew up in Minnesota. And when I started talking chili and cinnamon rolls, she just freaked out. She said, oh, my gosh, that's so disgusting. That makes no sense. That's like eating scrambled eggs and birthday cake together. <laughs> No, no, it's no. so good. It's so good. And then you start getting all these questions like, well, okay, what do you, do you dunk the cinnamon roll? Or we actually had caramel rolls, homemade caramel rolls, but do you Ooh. dunk the roll? Oh, I know they're so good. Do you dunk the roll in the chili? I said, well, I'm not aware that most people do that. I suppose you could, but generally you eat the chili and then you have the roll for dessert. So I I talk about this stuff from time to time. I've done some TV segments like Channel 13 and Des Moines has interviewed me about it and different places from time to time pick up on this. Well, out of the blue, late December this past year, I get a note from a gal that says she's a freelance writer with Smithsonian and she writes about regional niche food trends that most people in the country don't know about 
and she'd been hearing about this chili and cinnamon roll combo and she googled and she found my content i'd written a blog post taken from my section of the book about chili and cinnamon rolls and she said i'd like to interview you and i said yeah sure so we did a phone interview in January of this year. She called me the chili and cinnamon roll expert, which I thought, hey, that's a cool title. I guess I'll claim it. So yeah, now there's an article out there on smithsonian.com where I'm quoted as knowing something about chili and cinnamon rolls. So if that's my claim to fame, I will take it. <laughs> you know, if you want me to go back and re-record your intro to introduce you as the chili and cinnamon roll queen, um, we can definitely do that. Yeah, maybe you should. It catches people's attention. And I, you know, when I was talking to the Western Iowa Tourism Group, I said, and I wasn't joking. I'm not sure if they knew I wasn't joking, but seriously, I think we could really make a cottage industry out of this if more places actually had chili and cinnamon rolls. Well, and you want to talk about great stories. That is a topic people are passionate about. Oh, I think yes. of, so our school lunches were not that good. The chili and the cinnamon rolls weren't that good, but it was still your favorite and you still looked forward to it. And it took a crappy institutional lunch and all of a sudden it's still something that we're passionate about. It's like, well, I wouldn't pick the school chili or the school cinnamon rolls, but that was <laughs> such a piece of being, at least in our school, an Iowa kid. Yeah, you know, and people always want to know, well, what's the origin of that odd magical combination of chili and cinnamon rolls and i said well we can't find anything at least i've never found anything definitive but here's my theory i when i was growing up you had a lot of these good hard-working retired farm wives that knew how to make everything from scratch they had been these school cooks from the 60s into the 70s and 80s. And my guess is that when bulk commodities became quite readily available by the 1960s for these school lunch programs, you had things like flour and beans and ground beef and probably some thrifty farm wife that was cooking at the school said, well, what can we do with this stuff? What well, something that's reasonably healthy that kids would like. And that's how I suspect chili and cinnamon rolls was born. Well, and I think too, so the school chili was always spicy or more savory chili, and that's what you had the sweet cinnamon roll with. Now at home, my dad makes wonderful chili, but it's a sweeter chili, and that's not a, that's not a cinnamon roll chili. So I think too, which I'm sure wasn't intentional, but there's a nice balance of sweet and savory, sometimes spicy, depending on how you like your chili. It's just perfect, and nobody is going to be able to change my mind on that. I'll die on that hill. But there you go. And you know, you, you're right about that whole the the uh, cinnamony, savory, sweet. This really interesting flavor balance there, because I learned through all this um, research that basically they're in Cincinnati. They they are known for Cincinnati style chili, which tends to have a little bit more, from what I understand, I've never actually had it, but more of that cinnamony flavor profile to it. So. There's something about that combination that it's not just some silly Iowan came up with this idea. Other cooks have caught on to this. And so it really is a magical combination. And I am, I will always be a big fan of chili and cinnamon rolls, just like you are. But we think of whether you love it or hate it, it is something that people have strong opinions about. And that's not unique for Midwestern food, even if you look beyond Iowa. 
I know there are people listening to this that are going to have a fit when I say what I'm about to say. Um, but I don't hate Nebraska as much as I know some Iowans do. Maybe if you're a Big Ten fan, that might influence it. But I've got a lot of friends in Nebraska. I have a lot of good memories being in Nebraska because I grew up only a big hour from Omaha. So it was really no difference to go to Omaha or to Des Moines. And one of my favorite Nebraska things is Runza. And I, I say, you've got to be talking about Runza, Runza right? Yes. <laughs> so for anyone who's not familiar with Runza, it's this beautiful, crispy kind of bread pocket with seasoned ground beef and steamed cabbage. Sometimes there's cheese in there. It's a fast food chain too, but you can make your own at home. It's just this wonderful, just beautiful Nebraskan thing that the Nebraska land has blessed us with. Right. It's kind of like a hot pocket, only a million times better. Yes, that's exactly what it is. So like there's that in Nebraska. Or if you think of Wisconsin, I took my very first extended trip to Wisconsin. I'd been through, but had never gone and stayed. So last summer, I went to Milwaukee for a conference for work. And it was um, for a organization of people who work in communications at cooperatives. And most of the people there were working at ag cooperatives. So you get a bunch of ag people together in a place with a lot of good food. It's going to be a good time. And I feel like kind of an old person, you know, we always make fun of old people. All they talk about is food and other old people. But I feel like an old person because the best parts of that trip, aside from kind of this weird boating story that I'll have to tell you sometime is unrelated. But besides <laughs> that, the best parts of that trip were the beer and the cheese curds and I found out I like Wisconsin old fashions and now I order them around here and nobody knows how to make them or they roll their eyes because apparently they're a pain to make. But those were some of the highlights of that trip. And I felt like an old person when I got home because I was so obsessed with the culture of the food in Milwaukee. No, no. There, I mean, there's that's why there's a whole segment of the tourism industry built around culinary travel. These things are very very relevant, very primal, very fun. I, I've often said, I truly believe we could tell the history of humanity through food and then it wouldn't be boring. Then people would love history class because all these, the, the foods you're talking about, they're very much intertwined with the story of the land up there in Wisconsin, just as they are here in Iowa. It's a story of human settlement patterns. In some of my books, like Classic Restaurants of Des Moines and their recipes, Food is the venue that I use to talk about everything from civil rights to economic history. I, food is so powerful. And as you know, it a great beverage, a great meal will stick with you a lifetime. And the stories that are associated with that are just, they're the ultimate. It's just great. Well, and you've kind of alluded to it now as well, but I think part of that is the Midwest is such a cultural melting pot. You know, you talked about listening to heritage-driven dishes or learning about how Iowa farm wives make different cultural dishes, um, even if they might not consider themselves, quote, you know, cultural or, you know, anything but American. Obviously, they have ancestors who probably came from another country. Um, I think that food is such a big piece of that. You know, my heritage, you alluded to it earlier, I grew up in pretty close proximity to one of the largest Danish settlements, um, kind of Danish areas in rural America. 
So you could, you wouldn't tell, you know, just talking to us, we are very much regular, just rural Iowans, but we have such an awareness and a depth of interest for our Danish heritage, things like frikadellers. I remember going to my grandma's house after school once in a while, and I'd have supper there before church class, and she'd make frikadellers, which are these, basically they're just little Danish meatballs. Um, but then I'd go to school the next day and I'd talk about, oh, my grandma and I, you know, we had frikadellers last night. And then everybody looks at you like you just made that word up. So <laughs> I think that because there's so many different cultures in the Midwest, it really is this breeding ground for diversity in our palates, too. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for that. And I, when I talk to my audiences, I said one of the reasons I think in Iowa we hang on to these ethnic food traditions longer than most states is because of our farming heritage. And you know, you're a farm girl. When you have a family farm, it's not like you're moving every five to seven or 10 years like the average American is. You're, you're rooted in place. My family's been in Calhoun County since 1889. So you hang on to these these traces of the past because you're so closely tied to the land. And food those food traditions are always one of the last ones that completely goes away. I mean, we don't wear the ethnic costumes, like you say, the accents that maybe our great grandparents or great grandpa great great grandparents had when they immigrated here. The accents are all gone, but the food, those food traditions are powerful. And as you said earlier too, I don't think people always realize just how special and unique those food traditions are. You mentioned Runza. So I have a neighbor that's from Kansas originally, and now she's married to a farmer from here in Western, uh, West Central Iowa. But she makes these really cool things that are basically a Runza, but they were called Birocks, where she came from. But she loves making them because you got that hot pocket like dough pocket enclosing the really flavorful ground beef and the, the cabbage and everything in this little hot pocket. And they're great to take to the field when you're busy and you're running the combine and you don't have time to stop for lunch. They're not messy. They're filling. So all these wonderful traditions, whether you call them runzas or beer rocks, whatever your name for it is, those are special. Those are stories that need to be passed down to future generations. And I know you've written too, Obviously, in Iowa, we have a lot of um, kind of Norwegian, European heritage. But I know you've written, too, about heritage and food in Iowa from, you know, Asian descent. Um, I read an interesting kind of excerpt from your book about Des Moines restaurants talking about the original origins of Fong's Pizza, which I'm sure many people listening to this have heard of Fong's or even been to Fong's. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it all goes back to a Chinese place that was there forever called King Ying Lo. I mean, it, it's just amazing how as early as the early 1900s, one of the the longest lasting restaurants in Des Moines history was this King Ying Lo that um, all got started because of a, a craze of when a Chinese ambassador came to America in the 1890s, people just went crazy over all things Chinese, Chinese culture, Chinese history, Chinese food. And at that time, things like chop suey and anything Asian, they were just so exotic to most Midwestern palates, especially. We didn't have the Chinatowns like San Francisco and some of the larger cities had. 
And so when these start becoming mainstream, because all the the cool people were getting into these really trendy ethnic foods, which at that time was chop suey, then by the early 1900s, you have places like King Ying Lo popping up in Des Moines, and that's where all the elites went. They would go there after the theater. That's where the, the lawyers would convene after a day's work. I mean, just phenomenal how that stuff plays out in the larger context of American and world history. But once again, I think we could tell an awful lot of world history and local history just through our food traditions. Normally, I would kind of respond to a comment like that by saying, well, maybe you're going to be the person that writes that book. Um, (laughs) But you already have, which is what makes you such a great resource for this. Well, it's fun. And and I, I hope I do write more food books. I've got more that I would like to do because there's just so many, no pun intended, so many layers to the onion here, but you know, just so many great food stories and, and they never stopped. They never failed to catch people's attention, whether it's kids, whether it's adults, everybody likes to talk about food. And like you said, everybody has an opinion about food. So whether the stuff I say really people nod in agreement, Oh yeah, that's right on. Or whether they get really fired up like chili and cinnamon rolls, that's a crime against humanity. You know, that's what a good story should do. It shouldn't be just so bland and milk toast that it's forgettable and just not doesn't provoke an emotion. Really good stories should touch your heart. You know, there's an old saying, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. If I don't feel something emotional as a writer, there's no way I can communicate that emotion and get you to feel something in your heart when you read this. And really, when it comes to persuading and changing people's hearts and minds, it it comes down to emotion. And once again, that's where these stories are so powerful because they tap into not just our logical mind, but our emotion, our heart, the, the things that we really care about in life. So I just encourage people, give storytelling a chance. It is, like I say, it's the ultimate power tool and it will prevent you from being boring. And it's just a whole lot of fun. I'd imagine that one of the most fun parts for you on the food side of storytelling is, I'm assuming when you go to some of these restaurants to hear their stories, you might get to sample some of the cuisine that you're writing about. So share oh, with me yes. some of <laughs> some of the must-try, some of the, the best treats or establishments that you found on your travels and on your, your storytelling journey. You know, there's so many good ones. I would hate to single anyone out in particular, but I'll tell you in general the types of things that I really like to discover on my travels. Now, I will mention one in particular because it's St. Olaf's up in far northeast Iowa. They they are known for some of their tenderloins at a little restaurant bar that's in this little dinky, no nothing. It's just like hardly a town but it's in this really old late 1800s vintage building. I I love being surrounded by the history of that type of a building. I love walking into a place where, um, now that was for, they're famous for breaded pork tenderloins, but I was thinking of a place I was just at this weekend over in Camrar, a town of about 160 people southeast of Webster City. And Pickles, Pickles Pub, they're known for really great pizza. The pizza is just fantastic there. But, you know, a town like Camrar that lost its school years and years ago, if you look at some of the decor on the walls of this pub, they've got 
uh, tribute to you know newspaper clippings and other memorabilia from when the Kemmerer Comets won the girls' state basketball team or the girls' basketball team, I should say, the high school girls' basketball team won the state championship back in 1948. I just love those kinds of pieces of the history that honor the heritage. And then you get this taste of the present, which in this case, the pizza is just really good. But you just feel like you're connected to something larger than yourself. You get a good meal, but this is a place that honors tradition. They care about their roots. And that's what I'm all about is preserving these great stories, making them relevant for today. And that's when things really get interesting. And and it's never boring. There's always great places to discover around Iowa. Is there somewhere you haven't been on your foodie trail that you'd like to get to next? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, Yes, there are. And a lot of times, you know, I, I sometimes I discover hidden gems just from people talking or from people, that, restaurants that pop up on these top 10 lists of best burger or best breaded pork tenderloin. That was great when I got to be a judge a few years ago for the best burger in Iowa. That's a tough job, actually. Oh There's gosh. so much. I know so many good places to go, but. Yeah, I mean, if you're, especially if your listeners to this have places, and it doesn't just have to be Iowa, if there are places you think that I need to check out that would be, you know, whether it's a local food or just they're really good overall or whatever you think is noteworthy, let me know because I'm always looking for another fun place to, to tell stories about. So two I can share with you in this area that you may or may not have been to. Have you been to the flip side in Laverne? No, I haven't. Okay, so Laverne is a town south of Algona, Iowa. Very small, um, but it has two restaurants. One of them no, is the Hamburg really? Bar, which Laverne's I've also not heard. That big. Wow! Yeah, I know. I've also <laughs> heard the Handlebar is great. Never been there, but the okay. flip side is a kind of bar and grill type, you know, hometown restaurant. But their homemade pizza is the star of the show. Oh. And I can personally recommend the thin crust buffalo chicken pizza with a little bit of ranch on the side. Okay. Yes. The other recommendation I can give you, and I can't personally vouch for this one because I haven't been yet, but the Channel Inn in Fairmont. Okay. They have something called a channel burger. And Chad, my former boss and somebody you worked with, says the channel burger is to die for so if you ever get to southern minnesota the channel inn in fairmont is a must try oh good good i love having these things on my bucket list (laughs) (laughs) well my bucket list has been to have a podcast and on my list of guests you were one of them so i get to check something off of mine today well, thank you for the opportunity. It is so much fun to talk food, farming, and storytelling with you. Well, thank you, Darcy. Now, before you go, I ask every guest a couple of hot take questions on every episode of Shorts Weather. I need a better name, like Shorties or something. I've got a couple <laughs> of questions I get everybody's opinion on. Okay. And some of these are going to be perfect for today's example because they're all Midwestern themed and some of them are like food or food culture themed. So okay. I'm going to ask these questions and would love your reasoning to your answers. So the first one, 
scotcheroos or puppy chow? Ah, oh, you're going to make me pick between those two? I oh, am. Oh, oh. <laughs> okay, so if I'm in my glutton mode, then I'm going to go with puppy chow. Because believe it or not, I never knew about puppy chow until I went to college. And then once I discovered puppy chow, it was like a revolution, but it also packed on the freshman 15. <laughs> So those are one of those things. Once I start eating them, I can't stop. Now, I also love me a good scotcheroo. And those are a little bit easier with portion control. But, you know, I till I did my book, I thought everybody in the world knew about scotcheroos. They do not. I heard from so many people. Yeah, when I moved to Denver, when I moved to Chicago, wherever, these people had never heard of scotcheroos. And I said, well, I hope you made them some or took them some. Oh, yeah, they love them. So both, you know, Puppy Chow and Scotcheroos, both winners in my book. Well, it's kind of a non-answer, but I don't disagree with you, so I'll let it slide. (laughs) (laughs) This one probably won't be quite as polarizing, although if you listen to some of my prior episodes, I have a pretty strong opinion on this one. Um, So if you don't know my opinion yet, you'll have to go back and listen. But your opinion, Casey's or quick trip and i caveat quick trip it's the kwik or the quick star store oh okay oh well um i i was just in both of them this weekend um i guess i am still just out of a creature of habit i probably gravitate towards casey's just because it's been part of my life for as long as i can remember i think the casey's in lake city my hometown opened in 73 which is the same year i was born so i don't know a time without casey's but quick star which is more of a newcomer on the scene uh, there's a lot to like about quick star i mean it's like this mini grocery store in addition to the convenience store and i just discovered the other day that they've got these dollar 39 candy bars a lot cheaper than the other candy bars and they have incredible fillings like dark chocolate with raspberry so um, i'm interested in quick star but at this point i suppose my default is still casey's I did not know about the dark chocolate raspberry candy bars. So that's going to go on my bucket list. Oh, (laughs) yeah. They've got dark chocolate with mint. They've got about four or five different options. And so I'm kind of excited to try lots of different ones. (laughs) It's making me hungry. This whole conversation (laughs) is just making me hungry. I know, right? (laughs) So when it comes to Midwestern expressions, obviously there's a lot of them. But here's two, and I want you to pick one. Ope. Or Ufta. <laughs> well, being that I'm not Norwegian, I probably don't do the Ufta. Um, I don't know that I say Ope, but so I guess I'll have to default to the first one because I'm not an Ufta kind of girl. Well, to be honest, I'm not either, but I figure I better leave something in in case someday I have a Minnesota, Wisconsin guest on here. Um, right, right. But we all know Ope is the right answer. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, and you know, when I worked at that summer at Living History Farms, I we had some visitor from out east and, and they asked me a question and I answered it and they thanked me and I said, you bet. Oh, you must be from west of the Mississippi. So that was the first time I had heard anything like that. So, I mean, maybe you bet is something we can claim as our own too. Really? I'm going to have to look that one up now because that does not seem regional to me. No. No, it caught me off guard when that guy said that, but I never forgot it either. 
Oh my gosh. Well, I, I've got lots of things to look up candy bars. You bet. <laughs> this is going to be a spurring a research session. <laughs> you know it, right? <laughs> oh, and finally, an open-ended one for you um, and the namesake for this podcast. What temperature is the minimum temperature for shorts weather? Well, because I tend to be a cold-blooded person that's always cold, I'm going to say for me, I'm not even going to think about it till at least 75 degrees. And even then, it might be questionable. One thing that you and I are just different on, because <laughs> I wear shorts all year round, so. Well, I, I know. I look at these people, especially high school kids, college kids that wear these shorts year round, and I just think, I how do you do this? Although I dearly love my flip-flops and I am just loath to give them up when it gets cold in October. And I actually keep a pair of flip-flops around all year round. And I have been known to wear them out to the mailbox in the middle of the winter. So maybe I don't push the shorts thing, but I do love my flip-flops. Now I can relate to you on that. I At my parents' house, I have a pair of chore flip-flops all year round as well. So so I uh, I know how that goes, and I wear <laughs> flip-flops outside no matter what the temperature is. Sometimes, however, right. it's a little shorter than others. Right. <laughs> exactly. Oh, well, maybe that'll be your next book, Clothing Trends of the Midwest, right? <laughs> yes. Why do these crazy people wear shorts when it's 10 degrees outside? Darcy will never understand. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will watch for that one, and... Uh, Maybe you can credit me with the idea when you do write it. I certainly will. I give credit where credit is due. <laughs> oh, well, I feel like I say this on every episode, but this has been really fun. This has been great. Well, this has been fun. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And I hope this added some value for you and your listeners. This was a blast. Now, before you go, Darcy, I'm sure everybody's going to be interested in hearing more of what you have to say. I think we could record another episode just diving more into food and history in Iowa, and maybe we will someday. Um, we should. I'm we should do it. that. Yeah. We'll have to do that. So in the yeah, meantime, sure. until we get that episode recorded, where can folks find you? Yeah, I'm out there. It's just my website is my name, DarcyMalsby.com. So D-A-R-C-Y-M-A-U-L-S-B-Y. And then I'm also out on Facebook. I've got a personal page that you're welcome to send me a friend request, Darcy Doherty Malsby. And then my business Facebook, Darcy Malsby and Company. And then you know I'm out there on LinkedIn as well. And I'm on Instagram. So yeah, let's catch up. I'd love to stay in touch. All right, Darcy, it has been a pleasure. Thank you very much for all of your expertise and your wonderful storytelling. Well, thank you, and I'm glad that we'll get to talk again. That'll be fun. So Darcy is basically one of the coolest people I know, and every time I visit with her, I always learn something new and am amazed at how much she knows about the Midwest and especially Iowa. Um, and today we obviously drilled that down even further to Iowa and Midwestern food. So Darcy, always appreciate the chance to visit with you. And I hope all of you really enjoyed listening to what she had to say. Like I said, she knows so much and who knows, maybe we'll have her back on another episode to talk even more about things like puppy chow and scotcheroos. <laughs> if you are enjoying my taste in tangents and guests, 
please consider subscribing to Shorts Weather wherever you listen to your podcasts. And leaving a five-star review, if you're so inclined, would even be better. And it's a great way to support me and Shorts Weather for free. Another thing you can do, if you'd like, is share with a friend. If you're like me, maybe you sat at a school lunch table 10, 20, or more years ago and wondered with your friends why the heck the lunch ladies were serving cinnamon rolls with chili. Go ahead and share this podcast with that lunch table buddy um, and you guys can reminisce over some of your own lunchtime favorites and some good stories from your school lunchroom. We're three episodes in now. How cool is that? Three is actually my favorite number. I don't know why it always has been, probably always will be. I don't even know why we have favorite numbers, but I'm really excited about this. And I just want to say thank you to everybody who has listened, who shared, and who's reached out to give me some feedback, whether it's really positive or constructive. Um, This has been a fun project and I'm excited to continue the ride. So until next time, take care.